Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Greatest Love Stories and Black Beauty by Anna Sewell. Today we'll be passing from part one of the book to part two, but the chapters continue normally. So today we're covering chapters 19 through 22. 22 is the first chapter in book two. And now, chapter 19 of Black Beauty, Only Ignorance. I do not know how long I was ill. Mr. Bond, the horse doctor, came every day. One day he bled me. John held a pail full of blood. I felt very faint after it and thought I should die, and I believe they all thought so too. Ginger and Mary Legs had been moved into the other stable, so that I might be quiet, for the fever made me very quick of hearing. Any little noise seemed quite loud, and I could tell everyone's footstep going to and from the house. I knew all that was going on. One night John had to give me a draught. Thomas Green came in to help him. After I had taken it, and John had made me as comfortable as he could, he said he should stay half an hour to see how the medicine settled. Thomas said he would stay with him, so they went and sat down on a bench that had been brought into Mary Legg's stall, and put down the lantern at their feet, that I might not be disturbed with the light. For a while both men sat silent. Then Tom Green said in a low voice, "'I wish, John, you'd say a bit of kind word to Joe.' The boy's quite broken-hearted. He can't eat his meals, and he can't smile. He says he knows it was all his fault, though he is sure he did the best he knew, and he says if beauty dies, no one will ever speak to him again. It goes to my heart to hear him. I think you might give him just a word. He is not a bad boy. After a short pause, John said slowly, You must not be too hard upon me, Tom. I know he meant no harm. I never said he did. I know he is not a bad boy. But you see, I am sore myself. That horse is the pride of my heart, to say nothing of his being such a favorite with the master and mistress. And to think that his life may be flung away in this summer is more than I can bear. But if you think I am hard on the boy, I will try to give him a good word tomorrow. That is, I mean, if beauty is better. Well, John, thank you. I knew you did not wish to be too hard, and I'm glad you see it was only ignorance. John's voice almost startled me as he answered, Only ignorance? Only ignorance? How can you talk about only ignorance? Don't you know that it is the worst thing in the world next to wickedness? And which does the most mischief heaven only knows? If people can say, Oh, I did not know, I didn't mean any harm, they think it's all right. I suppose Martha Mulwash did not mean to kill that baby when she dosed it with Dalby and soothing syrups. But she did kill it, and was tried for manslaughter. And served her right, too, said Tom. A woman should not undertake to nurse a tender little child without knowing what is good and what is bad for it. Bill Starkey, continued John, did not mean to frighten his brother into fits when he dressed up like a ghost and ran after him in the moonlight. But he did. And that bright, handsome little fellow, that might have been the pride of any mother's heart, is just no better than an idiot, and never will be, if he lives to be eighty years old. You were a good deal cut up yourself, Tom, two weeks ago, when those young ladies left your hothouse door open, with a frosty east wind blowing right in. You said it killed a good many of your plants." "'Yeah, a good many,' said Tom. 
"'There was not one of the tender cuttings that was not nipped off. "'I shall have to strike all over again, "'and the worst of it is that I don't know where to go to get the fresh ones. "'I was nearly mad when I came in and saw what was done.' "'And yet,' said John, "'I am sure the young ladies did not mean it. "'It was only ignorance.' "'I heard no more of this conversation, "'for the medicine did well and sent me to sleep, "'and in the morning I felt much better. "'But I often thought of John's words "'when I came to know more of the world. "'We'll return with Chapter 20, "'right after these sponsor messages.' And now Chapter 20, Joe Green. Joe Green went on very well. He learned quickly, and was so attentive and careful that John began to trust him in many things. But as I have said, he was small of his age, and it was seldom that he was allowed to exercise either Ginger or me. But it so happened one morning that John was out with justice in the luggage cart, and the master wanted a note to be taken immediately to a gentleman's house, about three miles distant and sent his orders for Joe to saddle me and take it, adding the caution that he was to ride steadily. The note was delivered, and we were quietly returning when we came to the brickfield. Here we saw a cart heavily laden with bricks. The wheels had stuck fast in the stiff mud of some deep ruts, and the carter was shouting and flogging the two horses unmercifully. Joe pulled up. It was a sad sight. There were the two horses, straining and struggling with all their might to drag the cart out. "'but they could not move it. "'The sweat streamed from their legs and planks, "'their sides heaved, and every muscle was strained, "'while the man, fiercely pulling at the head of the four-horse, "'swore and lashed most brutally. "'Hold hard!' said Joe. "'Don't go on flogging the horses like that. "'The wheels are so stuck that they can't move the cart.' "'The man took no heed, but went on lashing. "'Stop, I tell you, stop!' said Joe. "'I'll help you to lighten the cart. "'They can't move it now.' "'Mind your own business, you impudent young rascal, "'and I'll mind mine.' "'The man was in a towering passion, "'and no worse for drink, "'and laid on the whip again. "'Joe turned my head, "'and the next moment we were going at a round gallop "'toward the house of the master brickmaker. "'I cannot say if John would have approved of our pace, "'but Joe and I were both of one mind, "'and so angry that we could not have gone slower.' The house stood close by the roadside. Joe knocked at the door and shouted, "'Hello! Is Mr. Clay at home?' The door was opened, and Mr. Clay himself came out. "'Hello, young man. You seem in a hurry. Any orders from the squire this morning?' "'No, Mr. Clay, but there's a fellow in your brickyard flogging two horses to death. I told him to stop, and he wouldn't. I said I'd help him to lighten the cart, and he wouldn't. So I have come to tell you.' "'Pray, sir, go help.' Joe's voice shook with excitement. "'Thank you, my lad,' said the man, running in for his hat, then pausing for a moment. "'Will you give evidence of what you saw if I should bring the fellow up before a magistrate?' "'That I will,' said Joe, and glad too. The man was gone, and we were on our way home at a smart trot. "'Why, what's the matter with you, Joe? You look angry all over,' said John." "'as the boy flung himself from the saddle. "'I am angry all over, I can tell you,' said the boy. "'And then, in hurried, excited words, "'he told all that had happened. "'Joe was usually such a quiet, gentle little fellow "'that it was wonderful to see him so roused. 
"'Right, Joe. You did right, my boy, whether the fellow gets a summons or not. Many folks would have ridden by and said it was not their business to interfere. Now I say that with cruelty and oppression, it is everybody's business to interfere when they see it. You did right, my boy.' Joe was quite calm by this time, and proud that John approved of him, and cleaned out my feet and rubbed me down with a firmer hand than usual.' They were just going home to dinner when the footman came down to the stable to say that Joe was wanted directly in the master's private room. There was a man brought up for ill-using horses, and Joe's evidence was wanted. The boy flushed up to his forehead, and his eyes sparkled. "'And they shall have it,' said he. "'Put yourself a bit straight,' said John. Joe gave a pull at his necktie and a twitch at his jacket, and was off in a moment. Our master, being one of the country magistrates, "'Cases were often brought to him to settle, or say what should be done. "'In the stable we heard no more for some time, as it was the men's dinner hour. "'But when Joe came next to the stable, I saw he was in high spirits. "'He gave me a good-natured slap and said, "'We won't see such things done, will we, old fellow?' "'We heard afterward that he had given his evidence so clearly, "'and the horses were in such an exhausted state, "'bearing marks of such brutal usage, "'that the carter was committed to take his trial.' "'and might possibly be sentenced to two or three months in prison. "'It was wonderful what a change had come over Joe. "'John laughed and said he had grown an inch taller in that week, "'and I believe he had. "'He was just as kind and gentle as before, "'but there was more purpose and determination in all that he did, "'as if he had jumped at once from a boy to a man. "'And now Chapter 21, The Parting.' Now I had lived in this happy place three years, but sad changes were about to come over us. We heard from time to time that our mistress was ill. The doctor was often at the house, and the master looked grave and anxious. Then we heard that she must leave her home at once, and go to a warm country for two or three years. The news fell upon the household like the tolling of a death bell. Everybody was sorry, but the master began directly to make arrangements for breaking up his establishment and leaving England. We used to hear it talked about in our stable. Indeed, nothing else was talked about. John went about his work silent and sad, and Joe scarcely whistled. There was a great deal of coming and going. Ginger and I had full work. The first of the party who went were Miss Jessie and Flora, with their governess. They came to bid us good-bye. They hugged poor Mary Legs like an old friend, and so indeed he was. Then we heard what had been arranged for us. Master had sold Ginger and me to his old friend, the Earl of Windsor, for he thought we should have a good place there. Mary Legs he had given to the vicar, who was wanting a pony for Mrs. Bloomfield. But it was on the condition that he should never be sold, and that when he was past work he should be shot and buried." Joe was engaged to take care of him and go help in the house, so I thought that Mary Legs was well off. John had the offer of several good places, but he said he should wait a little and look round. The evening before they left, the master came into the stable to give some directions, and to give his horses the last pat. He seemed very low-spirited. I knew that by his voice. I believe we horses can tell more by the voice than many men can. "'Have you decided what to do, John?' he said. "'I find you have not accepted either of those offers.' "'No, sir. I have made up my mind 
that if I could get a situation with some first-rate colt breaker and horse trainer, it would be the right thing for me. Many young animals are frightened and spoiled by wrong treatment, which need not be if the right man takes them in hand. I always get on well with horses, and if I could help some of them to a fair start, I should feel as if I was doing some good. What do you think of that, sir? I don't know a man anywhere, said Master, that I should think so suitable for it as yourself. You understand horses, and somehow they understand you, and in time you might set up for yourself. I think you could not do better. If in any way I can help you, write to me. I shall speak to my agent in London, and leave your character with him. Master gave John the name and address, and then he thanked him for his long and faithful service. But that was too much for John. Pray don't, sir. I can't bear it. You and my dear mistress have done so much for me that I could never repay it. But we shall never forget you, sir. And please, God, we may some day see mistress back again like herself. We must keep up hope, sir. Master gave John his hand, but he did not speak. And they both left the stable. The last sad day had come. The footman and the heavy luggage had gone off the day before and there were only master and mistress and her maid. Ginger and I brought the carriage up to the hall door for the last time. The servants brought out cushions and rugs and many other things, and when we were all arranged, master came down the steps carrying the mistress in his arms. I was on the side next to the house and could see all that went on. He placed her carefully in the carriage while the house servants stood round crying. "'Goodbye again,' he said. "'We shall not forget any of you.' "'And he got in. "'Drive on, John.' "'Joe jumped up, "'and we trotted slowly through the park and through the village, "'where the people were standing at their doors "'to have a last look and to say, "'God bless you. "'When we reached the railway station, "'I think Mistress walked from the carriage "'to the waiting room. "'I heard her say in her own sweet voice, "'Goodbye, John. "'God bless you.' "'I felt the rain twitch, "'but John made no answer.' Perhaps he could not speak. As soon as Joe had taken the things out of the carriage, John called him to stand by the horses, while he went on the platform. Poor Joe! He stood close up to our heads to hide his tears. Very soon the train came puffing up into the station. Then two or three minutes, and the doors were slammed too. The guard whistled, and the train glided away, leaving behind it only clouds of white smoke and some very heavy hearts. When it was quite out of sight, John came back. We shall never see you again, he said. Never. He took the reins, mounted the box, and with Joe drove slowly home. But it was not our home now. And now part two, chapter 22, Earl Jowl. The next morning after breakfast, Joe put Mary Legs into the mistress's low chaise to take him to the vicarage. He came first and said goodbye to us, and Mary Legs had neighed to us from the yard. Then John put the saddle on Ginger and the leading rein on me, and rode us across the country about fifteen miles to Urshall Park, where the Earl of Windsor lived. There was a very fine house and a great deal of stabling. We went into the yard through a stone gateway, and John asked for Mr. York. It was some time before he came. He was a fine-looking, middle-aged man, and his voice said at once that he expected to be obeyed. 
"'He was very friendly and polite to John, "'and after giving us a slight look, "'he called a groom to take us to our boxes "'and invited John to take some refreshment. "'We were taken to a light, airy stable "'and placed in boxes adjoining each other, "'where we were rubbed down and fed. "'In about a half an hour, John and Mr. York, "'who was to be our new coachman, came in to see us. "'Now, Mr. Manley,' he said, "'after carefully looking at us both, "'I could see no fault in these horses, "'but we all know that horses have their peculiarities "'as well as men, "'and that sometimes they need different treatment. "'I should like to know if there is anything particular "'in either of these that you would like to mention.' "'Well,' said John, "'I don't believe there is a better pair of horses in the country, "'and right grieved I am to part with them. "'But they are not alike.' "'The black one is the most perfect temper I ever knew. "'I suppose he has never known a hard word or a blow since he was foaled, "'and all his pleasure seems to be to do what you wish. "'But the chestnut, I fancy, must have had bad treatment. "'We heard as much from the dealer. "'She came to us snappish and suspicious, "'but when she found out what sort of place ours was, "'it all went off by degrees. "'For three years I've never seen the smallest sign of temper, "'and if she's well-treated,' "'There is not a better, more willing animal than she is. "'But she is naturally a more irritable constitution than the black horse. "'Flies tease her more. "'Anything wrong in the harness frets her more. "'And if she were ill-used or unfairly treated, "'she would not be unlikely to give tit for tat. "'You know that many high-mettled horses will do so.' "'Of course,' said York. "'I quite understand. "'But you know it is not easy in stables like these "'to have all the grooms,' "'just what they should be. "'I do my best, and there I must leave it. "'I'll remember what you have said about the mare.' "'They were going out of the stable "'when John stopped and said, "'I had better mention "'that we have never used the check rein "'with either of them. "'The black horse never had one on, "'and the dealer said it was the gag bit "'that spoiled the other's temper. "'Well,' said York, "'if they come here, "'they must wear the check rein.' "'I prefer a loose rein myself, "'and his lordship is always very reasonable about horses. "'But my lady, that's another thing. "'She will have style, "'and if her carriage horses are not reined up tight, "'she wouldn't look at them. "'I always stand out against the gag bit, "'and shall do so, "'but it must be tied up when my lady rides.' "'I am sorry for that. "'Very sorry,' said John. "'but I must go now, or I shall lose the train.' "'He came round to each of us to pat and speak to us for the last time. "'His voice sounded very sad. "'I held my face close to him. "'That was all I could do to say goodbye. "'And then he was gone. "'And I've never seen him since. "'The next day Lord Windsor came to look at us. "'He seemed pleased with our appearance. "'I have great confidence in these horses,' he said. "'from the character my friend Mr. Gordon has given me one of them. "'Of course they are not a match in color, "'but my idea is that they will do very well for the carriage "'while we are in the country. "'Before we go to London I must try to match Baron, "'the black horse, I believe, is perfect for riding.' "'York then told him what John had said about us. "'Well,' said he, "'you must keep an eye to the mare "'and put the check rein easy. "'I dare say they will do very well "'with a little humoring at first. "'I'll mention it to your lady.' "'In the afternoon we were harnessed and put in the carriage, "'and as the stable clock struck three, "'we were led round to the front of the house. "'It was all very grand, 
and three or four times as large as the old house at Birtwick, but not half so pleasant, if a horse may have an opinion. Two footmen were standing ready, dressed in drab livery, with scarlet breeches and white stockings. Presently we heard the rustling sound of silk as my lady came down the flight of some stone steps. She stepped round to look at us. She was a tall, proud-looking woman, and did not seem pleased about something, but she said nothing, and got into the carriage. This was the first time of wearing a check-rein, and I must say, though it certainly was a nuisance not to be able to get my head down now and then, it did not pull my head higher than I was accustomed to carry it. I felt anxious about Ginger, but she seemed to be quiet and content. The next day at three o'clock we were again at the door, and the footman as before. We heard the silk dress rustle, and the lady come down the steps, and in an imperious voice she said, "'York, you must put those horses' heads higher. They are not fit to be seen.' York got down and said very respectfully, "'I beg your pardon, my lady, but these horses have not been reined up for three years.' "'and my lord said it would be safer to bring them to it by degrees. "'But if your ladyship pleases, I could take them up a little more.' "'Do so,' she said. "'York came round to our heads and shortened the rein himself. "'One hole, I think. "'Every little makes a difference, be it for better or worse. "'And that day we had a steep hill to go up. "'Then I began to understand what I had heard of. "'Of course,' I wanted to put my head forward and take the carriage up with a will, as we'd been used to. But no, I had to pull with my head up now, and that took all the spirit out of me, and the strain came on my back and legs. When we came in, Ginger said, Now you see what it is like, but this is not bad. And if it does not get much worse than this, I shall say nothing about it, for we are very well treated here. But if they strain me up tight, look out. I can't bear it, and I won't. Day by day, hole by hole, our bearing reins were shortened, and instead of looking forward with pleasure to having any harness put on, as I used to do, I began to dread it. Ginger, too, seemed restless, though she said very little. At last I thought the worst was over. For several days there was no more shortening, and I determined to make the best of it and do my duty, though it was now a constant harass instead of a pleasure. But the worst was still to come. Join us next week for more of the story of Black Beauty by Anna Sewell. Hope you're enjoying the story. And if you are, please do send us a review. And please do share it with your friends. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Greatest Love Stories. Until next Sunday at noon, everyone, stay safe. And we'll be back soon.